0: As best as possible to make sure that we don't spend a lot of time reacting to the culture around us. That's always seemed odd to me um, that that churches would do a lot of that. And, And so, what we've always tried to do is faithfully teach the Bible week after week and allow God to grow us through His Word, which his word is always relevant. It's always applicable to our lives. So I don't necessarily believe this is just my opinion, and you can take it for that value of just my opinion, but I don't necessarily believe that the main calling of a pastor or a preacher is to give commentary on political things, cultural things. I understand why some, why some do that, um, and, and there are some churches with such vast influence in, in cities and communities that I, I understand totally why they do that. But I think a lot of times what happens is usually when preachers kind of do that, it preaches well and it gets everybody fired up and excited, uh, but I don't know that it actually serves a lot of uh, beneficial purposes for, um, for God's body for the church. And so I've just always tried, and we've always as a teaching team around here, tried to faithfully teach the Bible week after week and kind of let the chips fall where they may and, and allow God to push us and grow us and nudge us and, and all that stuff as he, uh, as he would. But there do come rare times, maybe two, three, four in our lifetime, there do come these times when something happens that is so big that it has everybody asking the same questions. It's got everybody at work around the water cooler talking about the same thing. It's got everybody on Facebook talking about the same thing. It's got all your relatives. The text group chats are talking about the same thing. The radio's talking about the same thing. There are a few times in in our lifetime, where this this will happen, and when that happens, I don't think necessarily that the best uh, choice would be to ignore that. Uh, I think it would be to open up the Bible and to see uh, what God's Word says about what everybody's talking about, right? All the questions that everybody seems to be asking. Let's try to find. What God, uh, what God would say. So today, we're taking a break from our element series. If you've been here the last few weeks, really this whole summer for us has been about uh, studying the fruit of the Spirit. And we've been doing that for the last few weeks. We're going to start next week doing that again, uh, starting back with our element series. But I want this week, I want to take a break from the element series to teach on the topic or the subject of homosexuality, okay? Now, as a church family, I want us today to open up the Bible and read what Jesus and the Apostle Paul have to say specifically about homosexuality. And I want to do it in the same way that we have had Sundays where we have truthfully but uncomfortably talked about things like divorce, things like tithing, things like sleeping together before you're married, or any other topic that was tough to hear, right? And if you've been around here long at all, you know... That we have made a commitment together to teach and learn from the whole Bible. Amen. Even the parts that are uncomfortable or, or, uh, or convicting to our specific situation. And to your credit, I have to say this, to your credit, you have always handled those Sundays with incredible grace and incredible courage. And I truly believe... Unlike any church that I've ever been a part of, and I've been a part of, of several and, and been a part of some great churches, unlike any church that I've ever been a part of, you really do want to try and obey God with your whole life. You really do want truth. You really do want to take that truth and trust Jesus with your, with your whole life, even in the parts that are challenging or tough for us to hear. And we say this all the time around here, so if you've been around, you've heard us say this, but God blesses obedience. We say it all the time, God blesses obedience, but we also add this to it, but he really blesses heart obedience. Now God blesses obedience, but he really blesses heart obedience, okay? Now let me say one more thing before we dive into the scriptures. My whole life and, and ministry, I have passionately strived to be as much like Jesus protecting the adulterous woman from the angry mob as I possibly can. And the worst part about today for me, just so you know, what's given me some nausea and some anxiety, the worst part about today for me is that some of you will hear what I'm saying and you're going to associate me with the angry mob. And that that really, that kills me because that's not what we're trying to do today. If you know me and you know this church's heart, you know that we have been committed from day one to defending sinners, uh, defending sinners publicly and challenging them privately. We've preached about it. We've talked about it. We use the adulterous woman story in the Bible as a reference for really how we believe God wants us to handle people who are in public sin. We've used that as a model And so we have used that model to talk privately to anyone and everyone who's struggling with any type of sin that they've either told us about or has become public. We've always used private settings to talk about that. And we've never used this stage and we've never used this pulpit to attack anybody or attack anybody's sin. And if you have an example of that, please come to me afterwards and remind me because that's just not, that's not what we do. So today... I'm not talking to anyone in here who is living a homosexual lifestyle because if, if we have talked about it or, or we know or, or you've talked to us about it or whatever, we've talked privately and you know uh, how we feel and what we feel the Bible says. So this is not necessarily for you today. I'm talking to the rest of us who don't maybe know what the Bible says teaches, or we don't maybe even know what to believe when it comes up at work, or when somebody asks us a question, we don't know what to say, we don't know what to believe. Or maybe those of us who think that we know what to believe, but we, but we maybe have a misinterpretation or an incorrect interpretation of, of the Bible. In John chapter 1, the Bible says that Jesus came to this world full of grace and truth. And it's our goal to be just like him. And all of us have a tendency to err on one side or the other of grace and truth, right? I mean, some of y'all in here, y'all are, y'all are truth bombers, okay? And you love truth and anything other than truth makes you angry and you, it, it, you feel called to be the defender and the proclaimer of truth. And I applaud that in you because I believe that God has put that desire in you. And others of you, you are the most unbelievable grace givers that I've ever been around in my life. You, I applaud that because I believe that God has put that inside of you. But no matter what side we tend to fall on, we have to be willing to also uh, go to or hang out in the other side if there are periods or seasons or circumstances that would cause us to be there. So if you are a truth guy or a truth woman, there are times in your life where you got to put the truth weapons down and you got to walk over to the grace side and you got to shut your mouth and you got to be a grace giver, even though that's not your natural tendency. But it's also true for those of us who are grace givers, that there may be times and there are situations where we have got to move over into the side of truth as tough and as difficult as it may be even though most of the time we're going to hang out in the grace camp, there are times we've got to go to the truth side. And we work very hard as a church to be a grace-first grace church. Many of you have shared how you love this church because it's a judgment-free zone. You talk about how you came in here, you know, and you showed up, screwed up, and messed up, and And you didn't feel like anybody judged you and you felt accepted and loved. And every time I hear that story, it just brings a huge smile to my face because we work hard at that and for that. As a staff and as elders, we spend time talking about that. It is one of our values that this is going to be a non-religious, judgment-free environment. Okay? So today is a day where I feel like truth, and clarification of truth is needed. And so and so I want us to specifically answer two questions today. The first answer that we're going to find or look for in the Bible is the, the, the big question, which is, is homosexuality a sin? Is it a sin? And then the second question we're going to answer or approach today is, what is the responsibility of a follower of Jesus? What, what do we do? Those of us who follow Jesus, what is our responsibility with the truth that we hope to learn today, okay? So we're going to answer those two questions, and I want to just challenge you for the next 20 or 25 or 30 minutes to, to, we say it all the time whenever it's going to be kind of a tough one, we say, hey, let's don't push back. Let's engage, and let's say, God, let me hear what you need me to hear and what you want me to hear, okay? Now, you have, you've probably heard or, or maybe someone has said to you before that homosexuality is a topic that Jesus never talked about. And that is true, that Jesus never said the word homosexual, but he did give us several passages of scripture as a reference point for what a relationship is supposed to look like. Okay, And I want us to start there today in Mark chapter 10. If you've got a Bible, you can open your Bible. I would encourage you to follow along today in a Bible. Maybe get a pen or a highlighter so you can keep some notes for yourself. If you don't have a Bible, that's no problem. It'll be up on the screen for you. All the scriptures will be up there today. All right. Here's what Mark chapter 10. We're going to start with verse 6. Here's what it says. Okay. It says, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, don't let anybody separate, okay? Now, we get Mark chapter 10 from an exchange between a group of men who were asking Jesus about divorce. These were a group of men who were looking to get out of marriage. They were looking for a loophole. They were asking Jesus a question, hoping that Jesus would give them the kind of answer that they would be able to walk away and go, I knew it, that's what I thought anyway, I got the answer that I needed, and now I can go do what I want to do, right? But Jesus responds by quoting something that God said himself in Genesis and he quotes what, what he believes, or what, not he believes, he's Jesus, he's God. He quotes what, how he created marriage to be. And we know this is an important statement because it was actually repeated uh, several times throughout the Bible. It was uh, said by God in Genesis. It was said by Jesus in the Gospels. And it was said again by Paul in the book of Ephesians. So we've got the Old Testament, the Gospels and the New Testament, all right? And and what Mark 10 tells us, and what was repeated by God, Jesus, and the Apostle Paul, is that when God designed marriage, he had a very specific model in mind. And he wasn't, just so you know, he wasn't just talking about homosexual versus heterosexual, okay? Okay. The, the, the identity or the design of marriage is much more specific than that. For God, marriage should involve a man getting out of his parents' basement, separating himself from his mom, doing his laundry, getting a job, limiting his Xbox time, growing up. Come on, ladies, let me get an amen right there. I do a lot of premarital counseling, and I always tell you, almost every time, it's like, dude, you got to grow up a little bit, okay? Growing up, and then that man marrying a woman. And in God's design of marriage, that man and that woman are no longer two separate individuals with two separate bank accounts, or two separate dreams, or two separate families, but the Bible says that they become one, not just through sex, but through God uniting them. It's the supernatural experience of marriage that God brings two people together as one. And this is what God, Jesus, and the Apostle Paul said, that marriage should be between a man and a woman, not a man and a girl, not a boy and a woman, not a man and a man, not a woman and a woman, not a man and an animal, not a man and multiple women, a man, and a woman, okay? And once you're married, unless someone is unfaithful to the other, okay, this is just as important as the homosexual, heterosexual part, it's supposed to be till death do you part, okay? Till death do you part. Now, as far as the Bible's concerned... Even though it's uncomfortable for us, and I understand the ramifications of what we're talking about, everybody's got a relative, a friend, someone that we care about, that we are, uh, in a sense, we're not talking about them, but we are talking about them through what we're reading in the Scripture. But the Bible explains it very simply, what God designed marriage to be. Now here's the problem. The problem is, is that as Christians, we have done such a pathetic job of modeling the kind of marriage that God designs, okay? So we've had no moral authority to try to stand and speak when we try to talk to anyone who disagrees with what marriage should be, okay? The sanctity of marriage is about much more than heterosexual versus homosexual, and we can't just pick out that one issue and say that homosexuals are ruining the sanctity of marriage, Heterosexuals have been ruining the sanctity of marriage long before homosexuals ever asked to be married. Okay? So we can't just pick out that one topic. But, regardless of how bad Christian heterosexuals have been at marriage, it doesn't change the truth that God, Jesus, and the Apostle Paul spoke about when they described or defined marriage between a man and a woman. So that's what the Bible teaches about marriage, but what about homosexuality in general? What if someone wants to be or feels that they are a homosexual, regardless of whether or not they could ever be married in God's eyes, what does the Bible say about that? Well, the Bible specifically addresses it. You may have heard people say things to you like the Bible doesn't talk about homosexuality or maybe you've heard somebody say or maybe you've even repeated a statement like, well, the Bible does talk about homosexuality, but it talks about it in the Old Testament in the same way that it says we shouldn't eat shellfish. So if we're going to hold that, then we get, can't eat you know, shellfish or whatever that, that example, that argument has been made. And it's true that the Old Testament talks about homosexuality. In the same way that it talks about shellfish. That is a 100% true statement. But that's not the only place that the Bible talks about homosexuality. And so what I want us to do today is I'm just, I just want us to put the Old Testament over here on the shelf because I can totally understand why someone would read some of those passages and read the passages around it and think, well, this is not relevant to where we are today. I understand that. It's not true, but I understand it. Okay? So let's put that to the side. And what I want us to do is I want us to look at the New Testament, okay? And we're going to look at Romans chapter 1 and 2. And these are scriptures after Jesus died on the cross. These are scriptures after he was raised from the dead. These are scriptures that were written by the apostles for us as believers to live our lives by, okay? And Paul is describing people just like me and you, okay? Okay? So, we're going to start Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 21, okay? And we're going to read a while and we'll stop and talk and then read and stop and talk and all that good stuff, okay? So, Romans chapter 1, verse 21. This is what it says It says, Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, let's just stop right there for a second and understand what Paul is saying, because it's very important to where we're going, okay? Paul says... That people knew God, okay? They knew of him. They knew about him. They had maybe even in their life experienced him or encountered him. But they wouldn't or they couldn't worship him as truly God because there were things about God that they didn't like. So they decided that since there were things about God, this is what Paul's describing in Romans, that since there were things about God that they didn't like, they foolishly decided to create a version of God that removed the parts that they didn't like. So they could worship a God that agreed with them. The problem is that when you reconstruct God to agree with you, you're not worshiping God anymore. Okay, when you create a version of God that you're comfortable with, that's not actually God. You are worshiping a man-made thing. The Bible would call it an idol, um, and, and, and most of the time, it talked about idols in the sense of statues and 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 rep, you know replicas and things that were made. But really, an idol just means a man-made thing. And when we read the Old Testament. And we read stories about people worshiping like poles, like literally poles in the ground. They would leave God and they would go worship a pole in the ground. We read that and we're like, how dumb are they? Like, how stupid is that to leave God and worship a pole, right? We do the same thing. We don't worship a pole, but we worship this man-made thing, right? And ultimately, the more that we reconstruct God to feel more comfortable, Paul says, the more confused we get. And isn't that so true? That the more we try to apply fairness and equal balance and... Well, this isn't true, but that's probably true, and that says it's true, but that can't be true now. The more we start reconstructing truth or God or the things that are true about God, ultimately we end up at a place of mass confusion because there's no longer any stable foundation to plant our feet on because everything has shifted and moved around now. So what is true? What can we worship, right? And we do this all the time, right? Like we do this with um, natural disasters or world events, and I hear this a lot of times, Uh, But maybe after like a a tsunami that destroys or kills a lot of people or a country or maybe a terrorist attack, we catch ourselves sometimes saying things or saying phrases like, I could never serve a God that, fill in the blank, maybe you said that before, I could never serve a God that would take someone's baby that young. I could never serve a God that would allow planes to go into a building like that. I could never serve a God that would allow that many people to die Uh, you know, from that type of natural disaster. Right? And I understand what you're saying, and I understand what you mean, and I understand the confusion that you're dealing with or wrestling with trying to understand why God would do things the way that he did it. But in those moments, we can't escape the truth of God. And there are times when we have to wrestle with the parts of God that stretch our faith or challenge us to ultimately surrender our whole lives to Him, even our doubts and even our fears. And we do this sometimes with scriptures or commands, right? Like the Bible or Jesus said, you know, forgive those people who have hurt you. And we were so hurt that we just can't deal with that. We, we understand why Jesus said it and we appreciate Jesus saying it and we want a relationship with God. We want to serve God. But like, Jason, I'm going to have to remove the command to forgive the person who hurt me because the hurt that was done to me is too great and I can't, I just can't forgive, right? And so you remove that part of the Bible or you remove that command or that truth that God gave us, right? And you feel better. It just feels so much better in those times to be able to have these self deproved attributes of God or our personal preferences. There's no greater feeling than, than feeling like God agrees with you, right? And so we have these preferences that, that we figure out a way to make God agree with us, but it just leads to confusion, and it just leads to idol worship, Paul says, And if you truly want a passionate relationship with God, here's what's going to happen. Over time, God is going to press in on your personal preference. He's going to press in on some of those doubts. He's going to press in on some of those fears. And he's going to give you the opportunity to surrender to him. Here's kind of a way to visualize it that, that uh, happens in my life and happens really for all of us. It's almost like in your relationship with God, you come to a fork in the road. And, and, and the, just for the sake of today, the right side, and I, I mean right and like the directional right side of the fork, is God's truth. It's God's commands for our life. It's the parts of our, it's God instructing us and pushing us and nudging us towards an area maybe we're uncomfortable with. Maybe it's, it's something about tithing or, or maybe it's staying in a marriage because God you know, wants us to do that. Whatever it is, it's, it's something we don't wanna do. It's something we don't wanna obey, but we know that God is speaking to us and challenging us to go that direction. That's the right side of the fork in the road, okay? You with me? The left side of the fork in the road is what we want. And the way that a relationship with God grows over time so that a 40-year Christian is not just a one-year Christian 40 times over, the way that you grow in a relationship with God is you come to those forks in the road and God gives you the opportunity to choose the right side or the left side. If you choose the right side, he's going to take you along the path, this journey, and you're going to grow and you're going to be kind of at a new, let me just use this phrase, level or season, a spiritual growth place where you're not the same person you were. You are growing in christ some of you have experienced that but if you choose to go to the left side let me tell you what's going to happen because i've been there a lot you're going to loop all the way back around the mountain maybe three months three weeks three years you're going to come right back to that fork in the road the choices have not changed and god's going to tap you on the shoulder and say it's decision time again and i don't know how you lived your life or your relationship with god but i've taken several trips around the same mountain And come back around to that place until finally I get to a point that says, God, I'm not totally comfortable and and, and I'm I'm fearful and I'm, I'm somewhat confused. But I am going to trust and follow and obey you. And when I choose that route, God always blesses obedience and always grows me and takes me to another place. Let me give you an example from my own life. It has always bothered me that good people, I'm talking about good people. From other religions who don't put their faith in Jesus won't go to heaven. It it bugs me. It bothers me. I'm talking about morally strong, ethical people who are good spouses, parents, employees, like good people. According to the Bible, that I believe is 100% true and inspired by God, according to 2 Timothy, they don't, and I'm air quoting this because this isn't the right word, but they don't qualify for heaven. You say, well, why? That's not fair. Because the Bible says that no one can know God except through Jesus. It's the only way to know God. And so if the only way to know God is through Jesus and you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. And I don't like that that is truth. I mean, I like that it's truth and that I have received it in my life. You understand what I mean by that. But like, I don't like the fact that I have friends who don't even really want to hear the gospel because they're actually better people than a lot of Christians that I know. You understand what I mean? Yes. Yes. I don't get a choice. I don't get a choice. Whether I think it's fair or not, it doesn't matter. Because I have to embrace and trust the truth of Scripture even when I don't even know if it totally makes sense. And here's the big one. It doesn't seem fair. Yes, yes. I got to trust. Yes. So that's what Paul starts us off with in Romans 1, 21, when he says there were these groups of people and they wanted God, but they didn't like that God disagreed with them. And so they made a kind of a different version of God. It took the form of like gold rap, you know, reptiles and things like that, and they worshiped that. But Paul said all it did was confuse them. It led to problems, because that's what always happens when you don't worship God, you worship your version of God. Okay? That's what he said. So let's keep reading verse 24. So God, same people, abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. They worship and serve the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged with sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men and as a result of the sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserve. Verse 28, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, and they don't mean just acknowledge him like, oh yeah, there's a God. He's referencing what we just read. Since they thought it was foolish to embrace all the truth of God instead of their truth, says that God abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. Weird ending there, but... Okay. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them... Anyway, worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. Now, so much could be said about the verses that we just read, okay? But I think the first thing to say is that the scriptures we just read are clear. They're clear. They don't leave a lot of wiggle room for our opinion. According to the Apostle Paul, God. Never intended for a woman to have sex with another woman or a man to have sex with another man. And these verses we just read use words like shameful desires, uses phrases like foolish thinking, has a sentence in there that says, He let them do things that should never be done. It should never be done. According to the scriptures that we just read, The acts of homosexuality are sinful. Now, but I want to also notice two other things that we didn't read in these verses, because there are sometimes with the Bible that what you read is important, but also what you don't read is important. The first thing that we don't read is that the sin of homosexual acts is worse than any other sin. As a matter of fact, homosexual acts are listed alongside disobeying your parents. Anybody ever done that? Disobeyed your parents? Yeah, me too. Me too. It's also listed along with greed, hate, envy, lying, gossip. Homosexual acts are sin. It is sin. But it's no different than other sin. Sin is sin. But there's another thing that we don't read that I believe is very important to notice. That based on Romans and other verses in the New Testament, such as 1 Corinthians... When the Bible talks about homosexuality and sin, it appears that it is the act of homosexuality that is the sin, not the desire or the temptation to act. Please hear that. And we don't have the time to dive into all the implications of what I just said, but I want to make sure that you hear what I am saying this morning. If sin is sin and there's no difference, then I would have to imagine that temptation is temptation. And I would have to imagine that not giving in to temptation is not giving in to temptation. I do believe that there are many people who have same-sex attraction, and I am not standing up here saying that they're making it up. And I don't believe that we can send them to some camp or retreat to get it out of them. I don't believe that. I think the Bible teaches, and I have experienced in my life that all of us, everybody say all, all of us are born with different attractions to different sins. Can I give you an example? Okay, let me give you an example about me. You could line up alcohol from the front steps of this stage all the way to downtown Louisville. Just line them up all the way down. And you could force me to stare at it for seven days straight. And there is very, very, very little chance. I would say absolutely no chance, but I don't want pride to come before the fall. There is very, very little chance that I'm going to become a drunk or an alcoholic. It's just not something that entices me. But that's not true for some of you, right? For some of you, just the sight of one beer gets your, gets your mouth watering and, and, and gets your heart you know, going a little bit. And you're not able to responsibly, reasonably handle the urges that come with drinking. We're different. Sin is sin. Temptation is temptation. But our uh, attractions to sins are different. In my own life, I'm attracted to mainly three things. Greed, lust, and pride. And if I ever go down crashing in flames and my life blows up and it's a disaster, I can almost guarantee you it's going to be because of one of those three things right there, if not more than one at the same time, okay? That's that's my struggle. And you have struggles, and we all struggle with sin, but we don't all struggle with the same sin, okay? All right, it's different for every person. So while I personally cannot relate to or understand the temptation of same-sex attraction, I can understand the temptation of sexual attraction. And I know that in my own life that around every corner is an opportunity for me to sin. But with God's gracious help, I have to choose Jesus over sin, because I believe what Jesus has for my life is better than any desire that I could fulfill outside of him. Okay? Now, I didn't always believe that. That's why I struggled to get out of some of the sins that were uh, holding me back and chaining me up. I didn't actually believe that what Jesus had for my life was better than any desire that I could fulfill. But when I did start believing that, I did start finding freedom from sins Not that I did not sin or struggle with sin anymore, but the bondage of sin that was on my life. Once I started truly believing, with God's gracious help, that that what God wanted for my life was better than desires I could fulfill outside of Jesus. That's when I began to find freedom. Now, if you're in the room today and you're struggling with feelings of same-sex attraction, you're doing just that. You're struggling. It's not your identity. And you're not defined by the temptations that try to separate you from God. Don't give up. Don't give in. Listen, it's not courage to give up and lose yourself to sin. It's courageous to give your life to God and know that even though you may struggle with strong temptation for the rest of your life, you will not believe the lie that getting what you want is better than having what God wants for your life. Please hear me, okay? That's courage. Courage. That's that's, that's more courage than most people will ever have, to know that you're choosing Jesus and a life of dealing with temptation. So the Bible does tell us plainly that the act of homosexuality is a sin. There are lots of people who don't agree with that. I get it. There are some of you in this room who don't agree with that. And I understand why you don't, and I could probably, we could get into lots of arguments about why we disagree and, and different things. At the end of the day, for me, and at the end of the day, for the leadership at this church, unanimously across the board, even though things sometimes seem unfair or cause us heartache or cause us uh, having to trust God in some of our own doubts and fears, We have decided that we are going to trust and believe in the Bible and what it has to say. And so the Bible gives us a clear picture, a clear definition. But what does that mean for those of us who are followers of Jesus? When it feels like that the culture and society are, are moving farther and farther away from what we believe the Bible teaches, how are we supposed to respond? That's a great question. And and, and what I love about the Bible is that if you just keep reading, we're just going to keep reading the same passage we've been reading this morning. And Paul's going to talk to us too. So even though there's a chapter separating it in the Bible, so you get to a chapter and you see a new number, it's still the same thought. It was a letter when it was written, and we're just going to keep going. In Romans chapter 2, verse 1, here's what it says. It says, you may think you can condemn such people. So he's talking to the body of believers now. He says, you may you may think you can condemn such people that I just described to you, but you're just as bad. And you have no excuse. And what he means by you have no excuse is that sinners sin, but you've given your life to Jesus. So let's stop. Okay, well, I'll get there in a second. So when you say that you are wicked so when you say they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God and His justice, justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from Your sin. Your sin. Now, if you've lost your voice in the last seven days from yelling at people or your fingers are swollen from thousand word Facebook posts, you're not going to be a big fan of what I'm about to say or what we just read. Because according to Paul, anything other than kindness, tolerance, and patience would be insane. Because we're just like them. Paul says we're just as bad. And some of you, when I say that, you're like, oh, I've never done that. I've never, I've never done that. Okay, we've never done that. But remember what we said, sin is sin. Amen. We're all sinners. Yes. There's only one difference between you and someone who hasn't put their faith in Jesus. And that, that the difference is that you admitted you were a sinner and needed grace. Yes. No one's better than anyone else. We just, like, we're all guilty. We just got a great lawyer, and they haven't called him yet. Okay? <laughs> but we're all guilty. And once we've forgotten how kind, tolerant, and patient God is with us, we, we cannot react with kindness and tolerance and patience to those around us who live and struggle with sin. I got up this morning early, couldn't really sleep, just thinking about today and decided to go for a run. And so I'm running around the neighborhood and that's some of my main praying time and and I um, always struggled to pray longer than like 15, 20 minutes. And I decided, well, I'll just pray when I run because it's going to take me that long to get back around. So that's kind of a lot of my praying time. And... Hallelujah. So I was praying. I just said, God, I, I thank you so much that when I disqualified myself a long time ago, you didn't disqualify me. Amen. Yes. God, I thank you that even though I've done more stupid things than a pastor should be allowed to do, I thank you that you didn't. Disqualify me, kick me out. I thank you for how patient you are with me, God. I think I'm just just taking some time to thank God for how incredible He's been to me. And the moment I forget that, I stop showing that to other people. But if I never forget it, then my life will be filled with patience and kindness, tolerance. But even, I guess more importantly than that is. The bigger fact that there's absolutely no reason that anybody in this room should be offended by anyone's sin because you didn't pay the price for their sin. Yeah. So they haven't committed an offense against you because you didn't die on the cross. Yeah. So why are you so angry? What are you so mad about? They didn't offend you. They didn't, you didn't pay for their sin. I want to read something to you out of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Craig came up. I guess I'm supposed to wrap it up. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> 2 Timothy two, twenty three 23 and 26. It says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. We, that needs to be a separate sermon right there for us. <laughs> don't we get in some of the most stupid arguments? thinking we're going to change somebody's mind thinking they think they're going to change our mind that's wrong and we think they're going to change, we're going to change their mind that's not true okay 24 and the Lord's servant that's us must not be quarrelsome but must be kind to everyone, Good. able to teach, not resentful opponents it's one of the few times that the Bible describes people who uh, are not believers in Jesus as opponents must be. Gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance. Leading them to a knowledge of truth. And that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Look at verse 25. According to Paul, we should be filled with hope. You say, what's the response, Jason? What do we do? According to Paul 25, we should be filled with hope. Our hearts should be filled with hope that God will grant someone repentance, give them a knowledge of the truth, and they'll come to their senses. Why? So we can say we were right and they were wrong? No. No. But so that they can escape from the trap of the devil who has them captive. Listen, the only way any of us ever came to our senses and asked God to take over our lives is because in a moment of grace and truth being extended, God gave us the knowledge of the truth. Yes. Yes. Thank you, and our hope is that as we extend grace and truth to all sinners living with every kind of sin, our hope is that they would repent yes. and escape from the enemy. And God doesn't need you to defend him. He doesn't need you to save the world. He already did that. God doesn't need you to inform anybody how bad they are, how evil they are. God isn't calling you to convict the world through Facebook. It doesn't work. All he's asking you to do is take every opportunity to be kind, have tolerance, show patience, and avoid arguments. Everyone has the right to be wrong. That's really what tolerance is. Tolerance is not that everyone has the right to be right. It's not that everybody's right. Everybody can't be right. Tolerance really means that everybody has the right to be wrong. And everyone has the right to reject God's truth and live the way that they want to live if that's what they want to do. That's what they want to do. That's what they get to do. I want you to remember what we read during our Thriving in Babylon series, which if you weren't here for that, go online, find the podcast, listen to those messages, because it was eerily scary prophetic to where we were going. But James 1, 20 and 21 says, Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. And then here's my favorite part, 21. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your life and humbly accept the word God has planted in your heart for it has the power to save your soul. Yeah. Yeah. What, are you, what are you so angry about? Now, I know some of you feel threatened. I know some of you feel like evil's winning and God is losing. But just take a deep breath. And ask yourself, do you really want to serve a God who is less powerful than the American government? Come on. It's crazy. As believers of, of God, like as followers of Jesus, we live our lives according to Scripture. But that doesn't mean that a, that a, that a country's government does that. So, that, so our government is going to use the Constitution and define that how they will, whether you agree or disagree, they're going, to, they're going to use the Constitution as their standard. And there are times when the Bible and the Constitution will disagree, but because of the constitutional rights, the right judgment is made. Even though it disagrees with Scripture from a national constitutional standpoint, we stand back and go, okay, that's not our standard, but that's their standard. Our standard's going to be the Bible. We're going to be patient, kind, tolerant, avoid arguments, be filled with hope, and pray our butts off for everyone who is trapped by the devil. Now, I want to I close today asking you two questions. I went really long today, but I felt like it was important to talk, so that's what we did. So um, I'm going to ask you two questions that I want us to close out with and then we're going to take communion and worship for a few moments. I want to ask you two questions and I want you to just use these questions to allow God to speak to you today, okay? Number one, am I conforming my life to God's truth or am I trying to serve a God who only agrees with me? And some of you will have to wrestle with that for the next few weeks, months even. Some of you will leave here today and you will say, I'm not going back to that church. It breaks my heart. It's made me sick the last couple of days. Because in your life at this moment, at this time, you do not want to accept God's truth if that truth would mean that there would be things that aren't fair to you. And so you're going to choose the left fork in the road, and God will bring you back at another time to that decision to be made. And I know that if you disagree with me, that sounds so arrogant. I understand. I don't. Please hear my heart. It's not arrogance at all. My heart breaks, it breaks. But you've got to decide: Am I going to conform to God's truth and allow Him to bless obedience, or am I going to say, "I do love God"? but not this, 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 and this, because that would mean this. We say, God, I I want you to have my whole life, my opinions and my preferences. I want you to have them. Second question. Am I as concerned with my sin as I am the sins of others? Am I as concerned with my sin as I am the sins of other people?